0: We have to be able to understand that that unevenness of learning for two, three, four months at a time is going to exacerbate some of those inequities that were already in place when students were in front of us.
1: I'm JB Wogan from Mathematica and welcome back to On the Evidence, a show that examines what we know about today's most urgent challenges and how we can make progress in addressing them. I'm recording on Monday, April 6th from my home studio, otherwise known as my bedroom closet. And today we're going to be talking about culturally responsive practices in education. As schools have closed to contain the spread of COVID-19, some students are in a better position to continue learning from home than others. Even when students aren't grappling with the fallout of the pandemic, they face disparities in their educational opportunities and experiences Due to differences in family income, differences in racial, ethnic, and other demographic characteristics, and differences in access to technology. Some state and local education leaders are proactively adopting culturally responsive practices to dismantle social and institutional barriers that inhibit student success. Our guests for this episode will share insights from both research and the field on implementing culturally responsive practices, George Guy Jr. has spent more than 20 years in education. He is currently serving as the principal of Rosa International Middle School in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and he has helped lead efforts to identify and employ culturally responsive practices in his district and beyond. Steve Malik is an education researcher at Mathematica who spent nearly a decade as a middle school math teacher and a coach of new teachers. As we were planning this episode, I was initially worried that culturally responsive practices might seem a little less salient as a topic now that students are home. But the more I prep for the conversation, the more I realize that school closures likely accentuate contextual differences in students' learning environments. Using a culturally responsive lens may be even more important for remote or e-learning. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, so let's start by introducing ourselves. So, Stephen George, would you just say your name, your job title, and your employer?
0: I am George Guy. Uh, I am the principal of Rose International Middle School in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Uh, and I am employed by Cherry Hill Public Schools.
2: And my name is Stephen Malik, and I'm a researcher at
1: Mathematica. Okay, great. So how did you all begin working with each other?
2: So George and I actually got connected on some prior work um, related to a webinar series sponsored by the Regional Educational Lab in the Mid-Atlantic region. Um, The webinar series focused on equity and culturally responsive practices, and it was a four-part series. And I believe we were connected through someone we had been working with. whose name was Dr. Robert Jarvis, who's at the University of Pennsylvania's Coalition for Educational Equity. And we got connected through that. And um, I think George led our third of four sessions. We're really digging into kind of the practitioner experience of culturally responsive practices. And the rest is history, as they say.
1: Okay, well, we'll talk more about culturally responsive practices in a second. But just out of curiosity, I mean, I mentioned in the introduction that we're recording today in April, we're all working from home. How has coronavirus affected your work?
0: So uh, while well, I'm actually in the office at school today, one of the rare times I am here, I'm actually working on a culturally responsive practice by being here And that we have handed out about 2,200 Chromebooks, but there are still demographics within each of our 19 schools that for whatever reason have not received Chromebooks, have not received hotspots for the ability to Uh, have the internet at home. So I am actually here um, handing out Chromebooks from our own uh, school Chromebook supply to select uh, families as they come. And for whatever reason, in the last two weeks, they haven't had a device. So it's our job to make sure that we give them a device uh, and a hotspot so that this access to this remote online learning that we're purporting that will probably continue through uh, the month of April into May here in New Jersey. will they will have uh, the appropriate device to be able to access uh, online work. So from a COVID-19 standpoint, it really hits home on the reason why I am in the facility today and working with families to make sure that they have access. And I believe that's a culturally responsive practice. That many of us who are in this work uh, value and feel strongly about. Uh, so that's how COVID nineteen has affected my current work and is affecting me today on April the sixth.
1: And is n- normally uh, you're, you said you're you're home now. How long have you been working from home when you're not? I mean, I, I understand today is an exception, but. When did you? When did when did the school close for most students and most faculty?
0: Yeah, so for Cherry Hill Public Schools schools, uh, the last day of session was March the 13th. So we've been out of session since March the 16th. Uh, the governor, Governor Murphy, has put into place uh, a hold for school closures until April the 17th, where we where we will all as a state revisit. Uh, our 540 school districts. We, we believe because we still haven't reached our peak yet here in New Jersey, that more than likely we will uh, be closed beyond April the 17th. So this is the new normal. I, we're kind of
2: assuming the same thing here. Like I'm, I'm making the mental assumption that most schools will remain closed for the entirety of the school year. Um, I think that's that's highly likely. Um, given that any sort of like effective social distancing technique seems to take at least four weeks to take hold, and there are at least eight states in the country that have not, as of this recording, I believe, enacted strict uh, social distancing uh, policies yet, so it's uh it's really yet to be seen. I mean, I think, it, and there's going to be a real question of what school is going to look like in the fall, even if we do remain closed through the end of this year. So, kind of a an interesting moment in history for sure.
1: And Steve, you're you're working from home in Seattle?
2: Uh, Yeah, in a suburb of Seattle. Yeah. And I typically work from home every day. But the big difference for for me is my spouse is also working from home. So a lot of kind of navigating of of space and time and who's on the phone and who's being loud and who's not. So (laughs) but uh, I think, you know, to your question about how this is really affecting the day to day work, I think, for us, you know, And and rightfully so, the coronavirus has really sucked up all of the oxygen in the room. And so, you know, a firm like Mathematica, which is deeply versed in research and, you know, evidence-based practices and those sorts of things, we've been thinking about ways that we can take our, you know, the things that we do well and create, you know, help connect people with the things that we do. So, for instance, for the Regional Educational Lab, um, next week on April 14th, we'll be uh, having a webinar on evidence-based practices for remote learning because, you know, states, districts, schools are having to make decisions right now, and there's a ton of stuff out there, but there's not a ton of stuff talking about what research And rigorous research has pointed to to being effective. So there's a real gap in information. Lots of anecdote, which is important. And folks are doing incredible things responding to the real-time needs, like George being (laughs) right out of school today. Um, Incredible. But um, there's still a lot of information that needs to get out to folks to help make evidence-based decisions to um, try and mitigate the effects of this.
1: Okay, Perfect. So we've already referenced culturally responsive practices a little bit, but let's start by—I'm I'm assuming that some of the people who will be listening to this podcast aren't familiar with that phrase. So could you maybe talk a little bit about the problem that culturally responsive practices in, in education is meant to address? And maybe, I mean, if you can, you know, give me an example of a student who wasn't served well by the status quo and is benefiting by these kinds of practices—
0: Yeah, so when we talk about culturally responsive practices, um, we really are just talking about practices that address inequitable outcomes for all students. Uh, I think some of the most glaring inequitable outcomes for all students primarily deal with access. I think my first example today talked a great deal about access uh, and students and families Who are um, coming to us who have not had a device to this remote learning and access and the diversity of those families is uh, something that probably needs to be noted as well. Uh, These families could have language diverse students. They could have students who have individual education plans. Um, They could be students who are coming to us uh, from different uh, varying levels of socioeconomic status. So I think access is important. And if we think beyond today and COVID-19, uh, when you talk about access or the inability to get access, you talk about once again, language diverse students in our gifted and talented, uh, education programs, um, students who are African American, Latinx and, uh, on our free and reduced lunch programs, Are they taking our honors and advanced placement uh, classes and then in our AP um, classes, which will actually AP exams will be taking place. They'll just be modified. uh, Later this month will students uh, have the ability to pay for the AP exam and then will they have the means um, to score a 3 or higher, which most 2 year or 4 year institutions are looking at as validation um, for um, support within AP. So those are just some examples of access and equity. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit later about a student, but I guess I can talk a little bit about him now. Uh, We'll just call him Marcus. He's actually uh, a junior now in high school, but I started with him in the sixth grade and he was, Part of a math pilot that we talk about from an access standpoint that uh, was meant to take African American, Latino uh, and students on free and reduced lunch and accelerate them from 6th grade math to a 7th grade accelerated pre algebra program. He was in that accelerated group did well went on to algebra the next year did well um, and in the last two years. He's going through geometry and algebra two, and he is set if he stays on this trajectory to take calculus uh, in his senior year. And that is important because a lot of the research shows us from an access standpoint that the highest level of post-secondary success that kids will have is based upon the highest level of the mathematics. They took uh, in their pre K to 12 education and calculus is, is one of the highest levels of mathematics that we have in our high school curriculum. So he is on that trajectory, but the culturally responsive practice was the acceleratory pilot to get him in the pre-algebra. He did the things that he needed to do to do well there, and we supported him and his mother and the teachers along that journey to get him in the algebra. We supported them again while he was in algebra. And then um, our colleagues at the high school have given him the support that he's needed to continue through. So culturally responsive practices really address inequitable outcomes for all students, but I think there is some specificity around historically underserved students. And if we are focusing, uh, I guess there's a sense around culturally responsive practices that there is an equity piece, that we are looking from a resource allocation standpoint to make sure that we could be providing more resources to historically underserved students who may not have traditionally had uh, the background uh, and the resources, the privilege, if you will, to be able to access these higher level courses and put themselves in a position in which their outcomes can be much more equitable than um, more traditionally served demographics of students.
2: Yeah, and I think um, George's contextualizing culturally responsive practices within a framework around equity is just spot on. And for, you know, folks listening to this, kind of hearing the term equity, you know, maybe that often invokes for folks this idea of equality. Um, And there's actually a little bit of a difference between the two that I think shapes how to think about culturally responsive practices. So equity is talking about just and fair distribution of resources based on individual needs, right? And so when you think about equality, and you think about equity, it's often thinking about the world of kind of inputs versus outputs. And in a world in which we're just thinking about equality, we're just thinking that everyone kind of has the same stuff or the same access to things at the very beginning, whereas thinking about equity causes us to think about, well, what actually happens, and, and what are those differences, and holding ourselves accountable for the outputs of the things that we're doing. So in some ways, it's kind of like those function machines you used to play with when you were a kid and learning math in, in school. You know, when I was playing on kind of some of the early first computers in, in school, you know, you'd have like a thing. it'd say, here's the number. Here's the number that pops out. What's going on in the function machine? Well, in this case, when we talking about equity, you know, we're putting things in. And not everyone in the um, world or the country is getting kind of the same stuff on the input. And the stuff is coming out. The, the, the function machine in this case serves as kind of like society. Structures, institutions, et cetera, that are shaping what happens to things that people get and what pops out of that. And so, when we start talking about historically underserved communities, students, families, um, we're talking about those systems that that inhibit families from having the same access to opportunity as others. And so, in in kind of how I think about culture responsive practices, a long way about to get that is to say. Culturally responsive practices are those things that help dismantle those institutional barriers to allow for those equitable outputs. Those kind of the same outputs that you would expect to happen, assuming everyone started with the same thing. I don't know, George, if that's too different from how you think about it, but kind of how I think about it.
0: No, definitely, uh, definitely contextualize equity uh, and inequitable outcomes from the resource allocation standpoint. So thank you, Steve. The
1: uh, the other. Metaphor that I've sometimes seen, and Steve, I mentioned this because I think I saw it in one of the webinars Mathematica hosted, where you have an adult and two children who are all trying to watch a baseball game behind a fence, and the adult is able to peer over the fence and watch the game no problem. There's a second child, there's a child who's maybe a teenager or a a taller child, and maybe they can just barely peer over it, and then there's a smaller child who can't see it at all, and then equality is If you were to give the same size stepping stool to, to everybody and, and maybe that would boost the second child, but not, or the first child, but not the second. And then, uh, equity is you're giving proportionally sized stepping stools so that everybody is able to get a full view of the baseball stadium just regardless of, um, what their original starting point or, or starting height was.
2: Yeah, and, and I think that's right. And a different way of saying this, and I think educators are very familiar with this term, but fair isn't always equal. What a kid needs isn't, you know, not everyone needs, or not everyone should get exactly what every kid needs, if that makes sense. You make, you know, as a teacher, you think about who your students are, what their needs are, and you develop instructional practices to meet those needs. And not every child in your classroom is going to need those exact same needs. But you need to be prepared to serve all of your students. And I think culturally responsive practices within the education setting is essentially saying states, districts, and schools have to operate in that same way in thinking about what are the needs of their students and how do we set them up to get those those resources or that, whatever they need.
1: George, I noticed that sometimes you use a slightly different term, culturally wise practices. Can you share a little bit about why you use this term and what it means to you?
0: Yeah, so culturally wise practices are still responsive, but oftentimes when we talk about any type of practice or framework that deals with equity or social justice, we tend to use the term uh, best alongside of it. And I think culturally wise responsive practices are those practices that really take into consideration inquiry as it relates to different contexts. And let me give you an example. You could, in theory, um, here in the state of New Jersey, we have uh, we we are the densest state in in the union. We have uh, about 540 school districts. So oftentimes, we'll have two um, urban environments close to one another, and you may have in one of those urban environments, uh, you may have some issues with uh, discipline disparities, and really looking at how kids are disciplined from a, an inequitable standpoint, uh, specifically African-American and Latino students, the research is showing us, and these two urban environments are struggling with the same discipline disparity, if you will. Now, in one of the contexts is, if you start asking questions, and this is where I think the wise practices comes, not necessarily the best practices, but if you use an inquiry modality, uh, and start asking questions of the data and asking questions about the about people who are manipulating the data in their values and belief systems. You might find that one of the urban environments who the demographics could be similar in terms of the racial and ethnic makeup. It could be similar in terms of the socioeconomic status. They may uh, have some ability to understand the work around this discipline disparity as one that needs more trauma-informed education, that maybe this particular urban environment is dealing with children who are struggling with adverse uh, childhood environments, uh, these ACEs that you will. And um, I think one of the concerns there is that they could certainly be struggling with trauma-informed education and a look at restorative practices. Whereas a couple miles down the road in another urban environment with very similar demographics, if you're using wise, culturally responsive practices and using the inquiry model, you might look and see that this discipline disparity has something to do with the code of conduct, which has not been addressed in the last decade and has some really, really harsh items in it, doesn't have leeway for uh, teachers and administrators uh, to use uh, discretion um, as it relates to uh, their application of the code of conduct. And uh, without that inquiry of the data and without that inquiry around adaptive understandings of people's values and beliefs, you would look right past the code of conduct and not see that that is probably one of the bigger system pieces that needs to take uh, shape and hold and needs some reformation. So I say culturally wise responsive practices are different than just culturally responsive practices that we think are best practices everywhere. Because those two urban contexts have very, once you start that inquiry cycle, they will have very different outcomes even though demographically, um, socioeconomically, and literally right down the street from one another, they could be the same. So, I think oftentimes as equity and social justice reformers trying to apply culturally responsive practices will go from one context to the other and try to put that framework on and our reformation efforts will be met with resistance or we won't. we, We may be getting at some of the surface issues. But we will not be addressing some of the deeper contextual systemic issues without that inquiry around data and without that inquiry around culture itself around what people who are manipulating the data and who people are position of powers. How do they feel believe and value certain things as it relates to discipline and discipline outcomes for um, for students. So I think that's why I use the term culturally responsive wise practices is important to kind of put in there.
2: And this is why I love getting on the phone with George and, and chatting with him about these topics, because I think there are pieces there that are are so connected with what research kind of tells us are best practices. Right. Like use data to understand what is actually happening express curiosity about why things are happening, and then dig deep, uncover those root causes, uncover what's happening, and then develop, you know, use evidence and research and and uh, wisdom from the field to figure out what are you going to do to tackle this issue? You know, when George brought up disparities and kind of disciplinary actions taken against, you know, black and brown students, I mean, that's very well documented, this disproportionality across the country. Um, a few years ago, there was a string of legislation at many states that were very strong anti-bullying uh, legislation. And the spirit behind these anti-bullying le- uh, legislation was to try and keep LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer youth who are being bullied and at risk of you know higher rates of suicide, etc. It was trying to protect uh, LGBTQ students. But what they found when they actually looked at this, started looking at the data, or some schools started looking at the data, was that these anti-bullying laws were actually targeting disproportionately LGBTQ youth. And there's a lot of reasons why that is, but essentially LGBTQ youth were defending themselves and then getting caught up into these zero tolerance policies, which has the exact opposite effect of what you're going for. And so, you know, to reiterate George's point, only through like Grounding your your analysis and data of what's actually happening, examining your policies in place, are you going to uncover these these challenges? But they, but what's you know it's kind of scary when you uncover these challenges. But it also creates possibility because it means that we can take action towards doing something to help support more equitable outcomes.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean it, it resonates with me a little bit just having followed state and local government for a number of years, and there's always a desire. To take advantage of shared problems and challenges that uh, lots of places uh, face and to try and figure out, well, what's a, a common playbook? How can we take something that worked in Portland, Oregon, and apply it in Baltimore, Maryland, or, you know, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota? And then there's always I've, I've, what I've seen is there, that there's that desire, but then there's also a desire to make sure that you're appropriately sort of adapting to the local context and that you know not everything you can't really just What I'm, I think what I'm hearing is you can't really have a playbook of say 10 culturally responsive practices that will work everywhere that there's a spirit of trying to be culturally responsive and then you have to ask certain questions to let that line of inquiry drive you to the specific solutions that will work in your community is that roughly correct
2: I think that's right. But I also don't want to lose the point that like, if a teacher has or an educator or a human being has unconscious bias against another group of people, that's going to play out, right? So so I would say like understanding unconscious and implicit bias that a person has against or for different groups of people, that you know, that's, that's a culturally responsive practice that's going to be true no matter where you're at. But the, the kind of importance of that versus other sorts of practices are going to, vary depending on the setting that you're in, kind of like what George was saying. Or at least that's my take. George, feel free to disagree.
0: <laughs> no, I would, I, I would agree. I think, you know, when we talk about culturally responsive practices, uh, I talked about inequitable outcomes, but I would say that Gloria Latson billings out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison would probably, you know, use the piece that culturally responsive practices would would somehow also empower the students and the, the staff and the community members, along with the family members, intellectually, socially, emotionally, and politically with the cultural norms that each one of those demographic groups are bringing to the inquiry, to the data, and to a sense of who they are. You heard Steve talk a little bit about unconscious bias, and we all have unconscious bias. So, I I believe Latson billings would talk about an empowering of us being able to understand our own unconscious bias, and I would agree with Steve that 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 is going to be a practice that we're going to take no matter where the context is. But we do have to make sure that what culturally responsive practices and, you know, JB, you were talking about this group of 10. You're absolutely right. I mean, if we had 10 practices, we, we could just refine this and take it to our local Walmart and patent it and have it out in different contexts. And, and we would be making some real headway as it relates to equitable outcomes for, for, for all students, but it just does not contextually match. So, there, there has to be kind of a, a basic understanding and appreciation of what it is that we as stakeholders, because we all come as stakeholders, share and begin to embrace as we try to apply different culturally responsive practices within different contexts. So, I would say that as an add-on to what Steve said.
2: And you know what you just made me think, George, too, is this idea of readiness um, is going to impact your ability to implement any culturally responsive practice. And something George talked about was increasing students and families and communities' socio-political awareness. And one of the things that I feel like the, 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 when we think about the education system, with the exception of maybe a social studies course or a government course, we think of education, or some people in this country think of education as apolitical, that there isn't an agenda in place for what students are expected to learn. But that's that's not true. Like there's a canon of literature that is expected to be taught to students that you know has certain perspectives and values embedded within it that are not culturally or demographically universal. But when they're expected to be taught to students, you know, you're presenting a certain perspective of the world as if that's the only perspective. So literature can be highly political. Mathematics content can be highly political. Um, and, And I think what culturally responsive practices and pedagogy in particular acknowledges is that all of this has kind of real world implications that distinctions between one's academic and uh, lived experiences in the community and at a home are kind of arbitrary and meaningless distinctions to some extent because they all inter- intersect with each other and that we should be aware of, you know, what I'm being taught, why I'm being taught, and what other perspectives or kind of insights might exist that I should also be learning about.
1: So, George, you've already given at least one example, maybe more, I'm trying to remember, but you've given at least one example of how you're using a culturally responsive practice at your school. But could you give a few more examples would kind of root this conversation in some specifics?
0: Sure. So I I think when you talk about culturally responsive practices within a school or even a school district setting, what you're really trying to get at is inequities that deal with educational outcomes. And they could be with adults, they could be with students, they could be with family members, they can be how the community is somehow influencing schools and school systems. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the things that that we are trying to do here at ROSA International that try to address culturally responsive practices in some very real and concrete ways. I think what we have tried to do is we've tried to add a notion of cultural responsiveness in and of itself to every aspect of what we do. So here in the state of New Jersey, we have something called intervention and referral services. Um, It is um, very akin to Uh, multi-tiered systems of support and um, response to intervention. So they, it underlies those things. It is what we call a kind of a pre-referral program before students are recommended for testing for individual education plans. And I can say in the last six years that intervention and referral services pre-referral program has been culturally responsive in the work that we've done with preparing teachers for um, how they support kids within pre-referral, whether that is an academic pre-referral a behavioral attendance pre-referral, what kind of supports we give to the teachers and the families and the students, um, and the evidence of such, because ultimately there's got to be some quantitative evidence that says this culturally responsive practice um, made a difference The work that we do, the communication that we do, the support of the staff and the students and the families that we do, the outcomes over six years have been incredible in that we have been able to, every year we've been able to minimize the amount of students that will go through our pre-referral program and then be referred to our child study teams for testing for special education. And that is important because as we look nationally, not just uh, from Rosa, but as we look nationally, oftentimes some of these historically underserved students are not going through these pre referral programs. And if they are going through them, there's not an element of cultural responsiveness that is undergirding the programs. And what I mean by cultural responsiveness with the pre referral program is we are very intentional about making sure that parent or guardians understand that this pre-referral program is not a uh, trip to special education. That we're just checking off the boxes and that your child will eventually go to special education and that's our plan. We are very intentional and culturally responsive because parent or guardians are human beings and we're seeing that in COVID-19 right now. Uh, We're being very cautious about how and when we communicate with Parental Guardians during COVID-19 and during our pre-referral intervention and referral services, we, uh, I guide our staff to make sure that if you can't get a parent in for a conference, that we are doing phone conferences, that we can follow up with email, that we have multiple ways and multiple times in which we can reach out to this parent to make sure that they understand what exactly is happening. We're even doing that um, during our remote learning opportunities so that we can continue to stay abreast with parents and how kids are accessing remote learning. So that the cultural responsiveness around the pre referral and over the six years and having a very uh, low rate of referral to special education is, is, is very important in our estimation because there is research out there that talks about black and brown students. Um, being over referred to uh, special education programming, and we do not want to be proliferators of that as a system. So our pre-referral program uh, has um, a number of teachers on it, special education and general education teachers. It has a assistant principal that guides the work. Uh, they have gone through training that deals with not only pre-referral work, but uh at least one of the members is on our di- is on our uh building cultural proficiency team so she brings cultural proficiency lenses to the work around pre referral so i think ultimately you can't if you don't look at quantitative pieces like how many kids are actually being referred to special education from the pre referral process then you can't really say that these culturally responsive practices are making a difference and making headway with kids. So I think that's a pretty good example.
2: With kind of a clearly defined scope of a program like what George is talking about, it also creates the opportunity to generate more evidence. What I mean by that is there is not a ton of rigorous research, uh, research that involves comparison group design that points to the efficacy of culturally responsive practices. Intuitively, it makes sense, right? But we don't have kind of that that, that strongest level of research to back it up. And when you have programs like what George is describing, it creates opportunities to generate evidence when schools kind of conduct their own mini, you know, tests, like does this referral across, you know, similar schools seem to increase or decrease uh, referrals to this program? Just so, so I guess the point here is it creates opportunities When you define the scope of a program, kind of like what George was describing, to be able to measure it more rigorously, help others understand what those practices are, and help disseminate that.
1: So I had two questions after this. I think I'm going to combine them. Basically, I'm interested in just how culturally responsive practices are are received, both from the teachers who might have to, the educators who might have to implement them, but also maybe at the more administrative level, uh, you know both within the school and also at the district level. George, can you describe what kind of appetite you've seen for these kinds of practices and how faculty and, and systems are responding to the approach?
0: So I, I would say that it is mixed, at, it's a mixed bag. I think that on the positive side, uh, we've been working with these culturally responsive practices and have had a have been fortunate the last three years to have pre-K to 12 teacher leaders along with their building level administrators from all 19 of our buildings, doing some work once every other month for a total of six times during the year for two hours to talk about these culturally responsive practices and using the framework of Glenn Singleton's work around courageous conversations of race and then using the framework of uh, Dolores and Randall Lindsay Terrell and others on a what is it a manual for school leader and cultural proficiency. Uh, So those are kind of our seminal texts that we've been using for the last three years and I would say that we have about 55 really strong teacher leaders that are really excited and um, have been working on this personally, professionally, turnkeying it within their contexts. But even at three years, we're just kind of scraping the surface. And that's why I say it's a mixed bag. Ron Heifetz, uh at Harvard GSE, actually, uh, the Kennedy School of Government uh, has these two notions of leadership. He says that 10% of what we try to do is around technical leadership. Uh, and that is where uh, we trying to uh, solve some problems. Like I talked about the problem with Marcus. So developing the pilot was quite simple. It was just trying to get some things in place to do some access pieces, getting resources together and doing all those other things. But the 90% was around the adaptive leadership piece that HIFAS talks about. and The adaptive leadership is really about how people are feeling about taking this particular pilot of students and placing them in an acceleration when they didn't meet the necessary more traditional criteria? Is that unfair? Are you giving them an advantage that other kids aren't? Why can't every kid have this advantage? And then when teachers are feeling a certain way about that, when they're feeling like there could have been some loss and and some lack of equality uh, within that, how does that play out in an adaptive way, whether or not they have those children in their class? And what kind of supports are they going to give to those students? Are they going to stretch themselves and go above and beyond as it relates to pedagogical supports, emotional supports, communication with their families, really holding them to very high expectations? So, HIFAS would call that that is where the work around culturally proficient practices, um, that 90% push is me talking with what you heard Steve talk about with teachers and trying to tease out levels of unconscious bias and how is it playing itself into pedagogy, high or low expectations for this cohort of students and what it is that we are or aren't doing for them. So I would say that those teacher leaders that have been working with us for three years, have been doing the work and they are the choir and they've been doing other pieces. But the rest of our school district, and we, we, we employ over a thousand certificated staff, that is where we need to do the more adaptive work that will take much more than a teacher leader turnkeying information around culturally responsive practices. It will take those teacher leaders, their colleagues, administrators, board members, district office members, family members to really have some uh, courageous conversations, uh, because that's why we use Singleton's work, because the pilot that I started, uh, now it's, it's going into its fourth year, really has uh, two racial groups that are a part of it, and we can't disseminate race from the work that we're trying to do as it relates to culturally responsive practices. It is not the end-all be-all of what we will do but it certainly is a factor and it's and it's a tough conversation to have with people, uh, especially if we are talking about the dominant uh, ethnicity in schools, which are middle class white women uh, that we're really struggling with. So I think when you you talk about how teachers respond, we we have gotten a, a great response from those teacher leaders and they are very excited about it. And then in our 19 schools, when they come back, They generally uh, have gotten kind of a mixed response. There are some who are welcoming it and have uh, embraced it, but then there are others that we need to do that more adaptive work with um, to help uncover what their values and belief systems are that that, uh, advertently affect pedagogy, advertently affect uh, expectation, advertently affect how they will communicate or how they won't communicate effectively with students and with families.
1: All right. So right now we're we're living through this pandemic. There are uh, students students at home. You know most I you know most of the country at this point. What do you think it means to be culturally responsive in the context of COVID nineteen? And I know you've talked a little bit about you know like. Chromebooks and and some of the technology in, in your school but if there's anything else you want to cover there and then I guess the follow-up question would be what what's keeping you up at night while schools are either closed or in this e-learning phase like what is what what uh, what work is there left for educators to do um, to address those concerns
0: so I think during covid 19 at best when you're talking about remote learning whether that is, Packets because schools and school districts do not have the technology to be able to provide an online uh, online platform or whether or not it's online. I think what's happening is that the inequities that we saw are being exacerbated and will continue to be exacerbated because remote learning at best uh, since we started late February, early March and then to the end of our school years for Many of us throughout the 50 states in the United States is going to be the term I have heard used by some of the social justice warriors that I really appreciate is uneven, that learning is going to be uneven. And I think as we matriculate into 2020, 2021, we have to be able to understand that that unevenness of learning for two, three, four months at a time is going to exacerbate some of those inequities that were already in place when students were in front of us. I think what keeps me up at night about COVID-19 and supporting our students and our families is that knowing that in the next two weeks or so that sick leave for many of our larger corporations is going to run out, that people are not going to Uh, have the ability in terms of businesses for essential personnel to continue to pay people. That we've put parents in a position for this remote learning and to be kind of uh, the people that are checking in on this remote learning, but also they are the breadwinners and that financially there could be some hardships in the next two weeks that we need to be aware of. What keeps me up at night is my ability to find out about those hardships, to communicate with uh, families about those hardships, and to be in a position that we've never been in as public school districts. We talk about partnerships with NGOs, faith-based, and nonprofit organizations, but we're going to need to enhance whatever those existing partnerships are, and we're going to need to expand those because there are going to be some pieces in which uh, George may be at home with three other siblings, While uh, uh, mom or dad were able to take off those first three weeks, but now have to go back to work or are put in a financial situation in which George has to work on his own work. But then George is the older sibling in the home and may have to uh, make sure that everybody else is doing their remote learning as well. And George may not get any uh, George's parent or guardians or families may not be in a position to support George. So how is it that I'm communicating, um, that my staff is communicating, that we as a district are communicating that those, those supports? I think one of the things that we're starting to see is many of our 540 school districts, whether or not they're taking spring break this week or spring break the more traditional week, the week of the 13th, they have worked with their food service providers to provide uh, lunch and breakfast meals even throughout spring break. Because families are going to need it. They're going to need just these sustenance pieces. So what's keeping me up at night is my ability or inability to communicate and find out about these pieces and my ability to expand on these partnerships that uh, we purport to say that we have, to be able to reach out to families with something substantive once we are communicating, to be able to support them with some tangible needs in addition to evening out the learning uh, disparities that may have come about with remote learning.
1: Steve, is there anything that, or what, what's, what's keeping you up at night, or what are you thinking about in terms of culture responsive practices, cultural responsiveness in the era of COVID-19?
2: You know, I, have a, I feel like I have a lot of thoughts just flowing out at once. Um, you know, the, the first and foremost is, I think we've seen a lot of appropriate praise for um, essential workers like healthcare professionals and others who've been going out and kind of tackling this head on. I think educators also deserve a fair amount of praise. For, for literally in days, some districts have completely re-envisioned how, you know, they get food to kids, right? Um, how to ensure that students are still physically safe, because not every kid goes home to a home that is physically safe. Thinking about how to connect families with resources, with the recent uh, relief bill that was passed, and you know the patchwork efforts from states and and localities. So I think educators deserve a huge just uh, round of applause. They're doing something that that no one has ever been really trained to do at this level ever before. So it's just it's it's incredible. I think with that, school systems have always kind of been the landscape or have been one of the main ways that the kind of the social safety net is enacted, um, you know, whether that's providing food to students, whether that's providing, a, you know, a, a thorough and efficient education, as they ascribe in New Jersey, um, I believe the Constitution says that, you know, our school systems have always been the place where kind of social safety net plays out because that's where we often see these social fault lines really pop open. And I think this is going to be no different um, than other sorts of situations, whether they're natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, or Hurricane Irene and Sandy and all these others, uh, these other kind of instances that have displaced people. So it's no surprise um, that the these stresses on the system. So all that is true. I also have kind of this strangely optimistic and hopeful feeling around the possibility of this moment for for kids um certainly research suggests that kind of remote and distance education hasn't always been beneficial for students who have been underserved by the education system but the rule book just got thrown out in a way that i don't think may ever be experienced or has never been experienced in, in my lifetime maybe even a generation before and it means that this is an opportunity to try new things out to experiment with what works to ditch what isn't working and to kind of reassess and go from there. You know, whether that's using continuous improvement cycles like we heard George talk about um between or that might be, you know, really innovative school systems experimenting with new ideas. I just think there's a tremendous opportunity here that I really hope school systems are able to seize on amidst doing all this other stuff that they're doing that is critically important. So, you know, what keeps me up at night? There's a lot keeping me up at night these days, but Um, What is not keeping me up is my belief in the educators out there just day in, day out trying to do what they believe is best for their kids and their students. So that is what, you know, that doesn't keep me up at night. I'll say that.
1: (laughs) Well, just to continue sort of on that hopeful note, you know, reflecting on uh, what you've learned about culture responsive practices, is there uh, anything that, uh, practice wisdom, something that you can share in terms of ways this has worked well, or, or, or advice that you would have for listeners of this podcast who are in a position to implement these practices in their communities?
0: Yeah, I think when you talk about it from a practitioner's standpoint, and I, I hope I'm reflecting practitioners at the classroom building and district level, you, you have to start with uh, where you see the inequity. And many who will listen to this podcast know that there is an inequity that uh, is within their locus of control. I think that's where you've, you've got to start. You've got to look at what your resources are and to kind of dovetail off of Steve's optimistic piece that he just put in, which I agree with. You, you have to start re-envisioning and reimagining what your resources can do for you within that locus of control to address that inequity. If you're a classroom teacher and you are within COVID-19 now, what is it that you can reimagine around the resources that you have available to you for remote learning, whether that is uh, more traditional resources or online resources that your kids can access or you can help them access where you can get help from your administrators and others to help access, what can you imagine those resources to be and do? I think one of the things that we found over our first two weeks, March the 16th, March the 23rd, was kids that were disaffected when they were in seats in front of us were actually doing better. They have responded to us and said that I don't have the distractions around me. I feel like I can kind of zero in on what I need to do. Uh, So what did we do? We reimagined what we were going to do from a grading perspective. We said, hey, uh, those first two weeks was review and reinforcement, and we were absolutely not putting in any grades because we just wanted to make sure everybody had access. But if kids did the work, we wanted to reward them for the work that they did. So we reimagined how grading would be for our third marking period and gave them credit for some of those things that we traditionally were not initially going to give them credit for. So I think those things, uh, that that is an equity piece that was within our locus of control that all three of our middle schools made a decision about. And we saw in our other 19, in, in our 19 buildings that other areas and levels were making decisions about. But I think when you talk about Culturally responsive practices. You've got to look at the the inequity that's right in front of you, that's been gnawing in your soul, that as you said, JB, keeps you awake at night. And then know what your locus of control is, and reimagine your resources and what those resources can do. I would say the 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 fourth thing and the the critical thing is, who are who are your thought partners and your allies in this mm-hmm. work? You've got to be able to have. Uh, this is not solitary work because if you are that solitary individual and then you think that you've enacted change and that change doesn't go beyond you and somehow you leave, you move on, you get promoted, you do something else, then you really haven't systemically, uh, I, I, I tend, I'm a I'm a former science teacher, so I tend to use science analogies. You haven't pollinated and cross pollinated uh, your colleagues with how you've reimagined your resources, how you've dealt with inequity, and how you've applied that the, that one particular culturally responsive practice. So you've got to get some thought partners, some people that can kind of tell you off uh, when you're totally off base other than your spouse or your significant other. Uh, and um, you've got to get those people uh, that can support you in your thinking, support you, but then push you also in how you are thinking and how you're reimagining uh, your resources to be able to address that one inequity and then this is my Mathematica push. You've got to be able to document that. You know, you we talked about cycles of inquiry and uh, cycles of improvement. You've got to be able to document that somewhere so that somewhere else somebody can begin to replicate that in a wise way, not necessarily a best practice way, but a wise way uh, for their context because your work is meaningful. So that's that's what I would say people need to start with at the classroom, the building, and the district level.
1: Well, that's a good segue for the last question I would ask each of you, which was what's, what's next on your agenda for culture responsive practices? And Steve, maybe you can speak to the work that Mathematica is and will continue to do around this part of education, uh, around teaching.
2: Yes. The U.S. Department of Education funds 10 regional education labs across the country. They're probably one of the largest investments made by the Department of Ed to increase the capacity of schools, states, and districts to use and apply data and evidence to inform decision-making. And the the RELs have really been thinking about how do we connect schools, states, districts with the information they need because there's a lot of very high-stakes decisions happening very quickly, Right. And so our, the rel um, that I've um, that Mathematica operates based in the Mid Atlantic region includes the states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and D.C has responded by kind of conducting a semi-systematic literature scan of remote evidence-based practices related to remote learning, um, as well as addressing um, some some equity issues. And we'll be hosting a webinar on April 14th, I think from 3.30 to 5 o'clock Eastern time, and we will be sharing the results of that LIT scan. Um, along with having a special guest speaker, someone who also worked with us on this equity and culturally responsive pedagogy webinar series that George presented for, uh, Dr. Heather Bennett from the Pennsylvania School Boards Association is going to be joining us and talking a bit about how they're thinking about some of the equity concerns that are are coming up here for, for students. So we're excited to keep this work moving forward and to do what we can to get the information that the educators need to make some of these decisions.
1: Okay, great. And George, what about you? What's next for you in terms of culturally responsive practices?
0: So I think uh, in addition to the podcast that I'm doing with uh, you and Steve, I am working with uh, the New Jersey Principals and Supervisors Association and the Foundation for Education Administration. We are working on a series of uh, free webinars for uh, districts. My next um, or my webinar will be around family engagement. And I tried to weave in some of the thoughts around family engagement into this particular podcast, but it, it will really be around connection, cognition, and capabilities are some of the are a framework from uh, Dr. Karen Mapp, who's at Harvard, who talks about this kind of dual capacity framework between kids, between families, and between schools. And I'm really going to be trying to highlight the connections piece, especially within these next two weeks of that webinar. So once I get the uh, verification of when that's going to happen, and it'll probably happen sometime in in April, that's what I'll be working on. And then from a connection standpoint here at ROSA, uh, we just uh, put together a vast document for all 783 of our, our kids and our guidance counselors and our teachers are working really, really hard. We've been in this remote learning uh, environment for three weeks. We know that we're going to be in it at least for one more week, uh, the week of the 13th, before the governor gives us some more direction. But we want to make sure that kids are, we are trying to even out the uh, unevenness of how kids are accessing remote learning. So the communication piece with us and how we're communicating, whether that is Zoom or Google Meet or old-fashioned telephone call and how we are interacting and supporting kids, especially how we look at our students who have individual education plans and how we are providing accommodations and modifications for them within a remote learning environment is is critical to us and how we're communicating with families on how we can better support those students are going to be some of the things that I'll do at the state level and here uh, at home at Rosen.
1: All right, terrific. So um, let me just say thank you. Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. It's timely and uh, it's important work. And I really appreciate hearing from both of you and your perspectives.
2: Well, J.B., thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about this. And George, as always, I just love getting on the phone and chatting with this stuff about this stuff with you. It's always, I always learn something every single time. So I appreciate it.
0: As do I, Steve. I appreciate the invitation and I'm looking forward to our next collaboration.
1: Thanks again to our guests, Principal George Guy Jr. and Steve Malik. On the Mathematica blog, I'll include a link to four free digital workshops on culturally responsive practices that the Mid-Atlantic Regional Educational Laboratory at Mathematica hosted. I'll also include a link to a short fact sheet about culturally responsive practices in education. As always, thank you for listening to On the Evidence, the Mathematica podcast. If you like this episode, please consider becoming a subscriber. We're available wherever you find podcasts. You can also keep up with the latest episodes, as well as other interesting work from Mathematica, by following me on Twitter. I'm at JBWogan.